This is The Guardian. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend that I don't, right? Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Scenes at St. James's Park. Who had ice-cool elite-level finishing on their Darwin Nunes bingo card? A great win for the 10 men of Liverpool. A big Manchester United comeback at Old Trafford. Did Nottingham Forest score too early and then score too early again? Arsenal dropped points at home to Fulham. Relegated by everyone in the previews, West Ham were top on Saturday night after winning at Brighton. And ball is real as James Madison excels for Spurs. Chelsea get a win. Villa are good again. And we really should get Everton a barn door, a cow and a banjo just to see what they could do. There's dissent, time-wasting, the philosophical question of when a goal-scoring opportunity becomes a goal-scoring opportunity. All that, plus a deeper analysis of the fame levels of Jonathan Wilson. Your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendenning, hello. Hi, Max. Uh, hello, Troy Townsend. Ah, good morning, Max. And hello, Jonathan Wilson. Morning. How are you doing? I'm very good, thanks. Uh, let's start St. James's Park. Newcastle 1, Liverpool 2. Wilson, you wrote a brilliant piece about this saying, look, sort of beyond all the bad things about football, the reason it's great is stuff like this happens. Yeah, it, I mean, football just has this, this capacity still at times, despite everything, to, to just surprise you in ways you thought you couldn't be surprised. And look, obviously Newcastle fans will disagree with this, but there's just something hilarious about those two late goals and particularly where they came from, from Darwin Nunez. A play, I know he got was it 17 goals last season, but a player who's sort of famous for missing chances, and particularly the sort of chances he took. You know, Darwin Nunez is very good when he can, when he when it has to be a first-time volley, when he's got time to sort of line it up, when he's hitting the ball off the ground, he struggles. And yet those were two absolutely brilliant finishes. And yeah, I, I, I was right in the sidebar on the game, and I, I'd sort of, yeah, you get the the... the the Alexander-Arnold stuff, should he have been sent off? His mistake, was that playing on his mind? The Virgil van Dijk red card. And you, there's loads of stuff to get my teeth stuck into here. So you write that and you think, no, I'd scrap all that, got to start again. But it was one of those rewrites you didn't resent because it was just a, a brilliant moment of football. I mean, that first finish, Barry, is... And Jonathan's right. There's no part of me. I thought that was shanked outside of his right foot, just into about row H. That's where I would. That's where I thought Darwin. If it was like what happens next, uh, that's where I would have put it. Yeah, and that's probably where he would have put it as well. Nine times <laughs> out of ten. But um, he pounced on a, a mistake by I think it was Sven Botman, and like Johnson says, when he's given time to think, you expect the worst. But he basically scored the same goal twice, and it was two brilliant finishes both on on the back of Newcastle errors. And, I mean, Newcastle weren't terrible in this game, but they did make a lot of mistakes. And when they were goal up and a man up, they they should have put the game beyond Liverpool but couldn't take their chances. They were saying on Match of the Day or at Sky, I can't remember which, that, that they're missing an elite striker. But I, I think Alexander Isaac has it in him to be elite. But they struggled to get him into the game yesterday. Look, I'm not going to lie, it was funny, but I don't think Newcastle fans need to panic yet. The worry is that they, I think they go to Brighton next weekend and that's going to be a tough fixture. If they lose, that will be three defeats in a row. And what one wonders at what point the, the natives would start getting restless. Mm. I mean, anyhow, it's no David Moyes as well that. But we'll get to West Ham's uh, uh, victory at Brighton in a bit. Troy, I mean, should we... There's so much from this game. 
the Trent Alexander-Arnold thing is interesting. Like, I think he definitely should have been sent off once he's already got a yellow card. But like that first yellow for being fouled, not getting a free kick, and then just lobbing it a tiny bit just because there's been a big directive seems so unfair. Like, had he got a second yellow, like, I'm kind of pleased that he didn't get sent off. I make you right there, Max. It, it, you know, the first foul by Gordon should have been picked up by anyone that was watching it. And you had, obviously, you get the... The, the assistant official, you get the referee who deemed that not a foul. It's one of Gordon's traits, funny enough. He does it quite often. He always barges someone in the back and, and often gets away with it. But this one was so glaring a miss. And then, look, the directive is you, you throw the ball away, you're wasting time, although there was only a couple of minutes gone, and you suffer the consequences for it. And that's what he did. My take on the second one... <laughs> It's going to be a bit different. I don't know how Gordon went down. I really don't know how Gordon went down. That was not enough of a touch. I'm not saying that... Sounds like you hate Anthony Gordon. No, I don't. keep Andros out of the Everton (laughs) side for a bit. (laughs) No, I don't. But I know Gordon's game and you touch Gordon, he's going down. Gordon barges people in the back when he gets frustrated. He got frustrated very early on. That touch on the shoulder, he tried to pull him down. He didn't succeed. He didn't even pull his shirt. But I get it. I get it. You know, he's gone down. It should have been a yellow. It should have been off. It would have been probably the most harshest two yellow cards for me. Um, And obviously he suffered in the first half. But you've also got to commend Trent Arnold for the way that he stayed with it. He could have been taken off. Many a manager might have done. Might have said he's too much of a risk. Let's get him off. And particularly after Van Dijk um, went. But you've got to commend him for the way that he, he kind of made sure that he, you know, after the error for the goal as well, made sure that he kept himself in the game and kept himself focused. And a lot of people don't put focused and Trent Arnold next to each other, but he did. And, you know, he contributed to, to I think it was the second goal. Um, so, you know, you've got to give him a lot of plaudits. Although very fortunate to stay on the field of play. But yeah, I'm just questioning um, the second one. Um, although I can understand why it would be a yellow and that would, um, suffice for a red card. The Van Dyke one, Wilson, is that you watch it and nobody who follows football thinks it's a red card, but actually it is definitely a red card. Uh, no, I thought it was a red card. I, well, to be honest, when I first saw it, I wasn't I wasn't absolutely certain whether he'd gone through Isaac first, but obviously you see the replay, Isaac, so well, you see the replay, he clearly has gone through Isaac, so I, I'm, I'm comfortable with that being a a goal-scoring opportunity. I, I don't think we should be looking for reasons to let players off in that situation. If somebody's turned on the edge of the box and is through on goal and he gets brought down, I, I, you know, I, I think that, that the the tendency should be to strictness in, in, in that situation. But it is this interesting question of, and it, it never occurred to me the ambiguity is there in the laws, but it is, that the denial of a goal-scoring opportunity, does a goal-scoring opportunity have to exist to be denied or are you denying the potential for that to, to exist? And, and that's a, a, a really, I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. But I, I think the fact that Isaac had got his, his body between Van Dijk and the ball, that it was on his left foot, that he was turning into the box, one touch and he was going to shoot, he takes him out. I, I, I think that is, a, that is a red card. And they, were with, they had 10 men for a long time, Barry. But the interesting thing is, and obviously we know Anthony Gordon just dives and barges people in the back, but he actually, he actually like completely roasted Trent Alexander-Arnold for that first 20-odd minutes and he was un- he was unplayable, actually. But but Newcastle was so much better than Liverpool when it was 11 v 11 and they weren't when Liverpool were down to 10 men. Eddie Howe said as much after the game and was at a loss to, to explain it and I'm not sure I know how to explain it either. But they just seemed, I, I don't know, complacency set in. They were a goal up. They had an extra man. Maybe they thought, yeah, we're, we're grand here. And there's no doubt in my mind, I think, if if they had got another goal, that would have been that. And they should have got another goal because they missed several excellent chances. And Alisson made. I mean, the Alisson save from Almiron is unbelievable. Oh, right? that save. Oh, mm, that, that save was just extraordinary. Absolutely incredible save. I, I couldn't believe it. That was, yeah, from Almiron, just blasting the ball his way. I don't know how he kept it out. It was, it was an extraordinary save and probably a, a match-winning save. You know, Howe has been criticised for his substitutions. 
I, I'm not sure that's entirely fair. Who's to say Newcastle wouldn't have lost anyway if they had? But it, I did think that the decision to take off Gordon was slightly odd because he was having the game of his life and absolutely roasting Alexander-Arnold. And, yeah, it seemed odd to remove him. That was my call. I 72nd minute, Gordon, Tonali and Isaac off at the same time. I don't know whether it was a little bit of arrogance thinking the game, not the game was done, but they could see the game out. And I know they had, Almiron then had a, a great run, didn't he, and, and cut inside um, and hit the, the inside of the post, you know, an on-target shot again. Um, <laughs> but it was, I just felt that, would you do that at only one nil up? You know, Barry said it, Gordon... You know, every time he got on the ball, there was fear in the Liverpool defence, not just Alexander-Arnold. I think there was clear fear that he was going to, you know, either create another opportunity or, or, you know, put the ball in the back of the net. And I just couldn't understand the three substitutions at that time. A really important time when you're going into the last quarter and you think to yourself, right, this could go either way because Liverpool are getting more on the ball. I'm going to take off probably, you know, two of our best players anyway. I didn't think, I thought Isaac was, was, was dealt with very well, by the way. And you can always call for that change. I didn't understand the reason behind it. And I think it gave Liverpool the lift, the, the final lift that they needed to go and approach and attack the game again. And obviously they did it in spectacular style. Gordon, I mean, we were talking about what a great game he had. And... It was his pass that led to the red card as well. So it was him turning inside Alexander-Arnold. But what struck me then was, where was the midfield? There was It was just a gap there. He turned inside Alexander-Arnold. Alexander-Arnold hasn't particularly wrong. You know, he's, he's, he's had space to turn inside. And what that then causes is Matip moving to his right. Van Dijk then has to shift across. Van Dijk's worried about, I think it's Tonali running over his left shoulder. And Robertson hasn't quite tucked in. Where was where was the midfield? But that changed after the red card because they went to a sort of a four four one. Alexander Arnold wasn't doing any messing about coming in the midfield. He wasn't getting forward. He was just doing an orthodox right back's job. Salah gave him much more protection than he'd been giving him. And I think Gordon's influence on the game fell away after that sort of twenty fifth minute. I mean, I'm not saying he played badly or anything, but that first twenty five minutes he was running the game, and that stopped after the red card. I, I think the problem with the substitutions, it wasn't any one of them. It was making all three at once. It felt a very sort of, um, you're taking off three of your most creative players. It seemed sort of, you know, why, are you, why are you trying to hold on? And I think that that did encourage Liverpool forward. So yeah, I, I think there's sort of two elements there. So one is something something wasn't working in, in Liverpool midfield early. And, and then, I, I mean, yeah, arrogance maybe, or, or maybe it was sort of fear. Maybe Eddie Howard sort of recognised that we need to shore this up. Having said that, not just the Almiron chance, there was that opportunity when Harvey Barnes got three down the left. He had Callum Wilson through the middle and should have squared it and didn't. Yeah. And actually, if he squares it, which is a really easy pass and he's done that already this season to Callum Wilson, this conversation is totally different, isn't it? Because you go, well, those changes were were perfect. Oh, you say they brought on two subs and they've, they've combined to get the second, yeah. Let's go to Old Trafford. Manchester United three, Nottingham Forest two. Uh, Wilson, some real crisis klaxons around Old Trafford after two minutes and then four minutes. But obviously, they scored too early and then compounded it, the idiots, <laughs> by scoring again. I mean, in some ways, it was sort of classic Manchester United that they, yeah, they, they for 30 years, they seem to be conceding early goals at home and then coming back and winning. So maybe it's just part of that. But that first goal, it was, yeah, again, how open was that midfield? Yeah, there's exactly the same problem as we saw against Wolves, exactly the same problem as we saw sort of after the half hour against Spurs. They've got a massive problem with the balance of that midfield. Casemiro's all over the place so far this season, uh, for whatever reason. The the only good thing you can say for United is somehow they've got six points, but they've been absolutely terrible this season. Hmm. Um, Nottingham Forest, Troy, are considering making a complaint to the PGMOL um, over the red card and the penalty. I thought the penalty was pretty soft. I'd say Gordon didn't need to go down. I don't think Rashford needed to go down. But it does beg the question... What possible thing do you get from the PGMOL if that, you know, you either get Howard Webb arriving saying, I'm sorry, which is like, that is that what you want? Do you get what? Do you get a hamper from Fortnum and Mason? What do they, what do they give you? What possible thing can you get from Stockley Park to make it worth being annoyed? Writing a letter asking for, you know, whatever they're asking for. When that headline came out, I wondered, how, how do they know that they're considering 
You know, how do they know that? Has someone come out and said, we are considering talking to the... Because you're right, there's no gain from it, you know, apart from registering and then almost putting it up on your your post and saying, you know what, if this happens again, we're not going to consider, we're just going to absolutely do it. And this time we'll actually, you know, demand answers. I didn't think it was a pen. It was very simple. I didn't think it was a red card. Again, that one on, did he deny a goal-scoring opportunity? Fernandez was never getting the ball, was never getting the ball. Um, yellow at max for me, but, you know, ultimately these new rules, who knows how far or what extreme they're taking them to. So you agree, you think they do have grounds to make an official, they should stop considering it and get on with it. <laughs> I, listen, it, it's part of, it, it is what it is. It, it, you know, it happens in the game. If I'm not saying that you, because like you've said there, what are they going to get from it? What is Howard, Howard Webb going to say? Do we really need an ever an apology if if uh, a decision was wrong? The apology doesn't gain points back. The apology doesn't, you know, if it is an apology. Or actually, they may stick to their guns and say, well, no, it was an ultimate red because he was pulling at his shorts and the pen was a pen. Um, considering makes no sense for me. Um, they can be hard done by, but they threw away a two-goal lead. It's as simple as that. They threw away a two-goal lead. Yes, it's true. They they um should Should they consider... I said this to you yesterday on the radio. Should they consider uh, lodging a complaint with their own defence? Like, like, can can they do that? Can they do that too? Sorry, Wilson. First of all, I think it was a red card, and I think it was a penalty. Jonathan, don't go against me, please. It makes people <laughs> laugh at me. I I agree with Jonathan. I have to say. Oh, boy, here we I, go. I just think if you're twenty, thirty yards from goal, and and you start pulling at people's kit, you're asking for it. But was there not? You just was don't there do not- it recovering defender and was Fernandez getting the ball right possibly but the, my point is it's a cynical foul and I'm more concerned about you know we, can, we talk about intent a lot here there is clear intent to commit a cynical foul because he's grabbed him and that needs to be removed from the game and if that means some players are sent off slightly harshly so be it I equally think Rashford he's going quickly he gets a clip just above his knee if you're going at pace you don't know about what his balance is like Maybe he does go down slightly softly, but it's really affected his balance and his running, so he goes down. I, I just think they're, they're, they're both correct decisions. They're certainly not wrong decisions. Yeah, uh, but you know, that. why 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 do you make the complaint? Well, I think there's two reasons. One is to try and put pressure on referees in the future. Maybe Howard Webb just thinks, oh God, I, I can't I can't drive to to Nottingham and. Because I've, I've got to do Brighton as well. I'm, I'm, all, I'm like, I'm just going to be exhausted like, up and down the motorway. Could could we start giving bad decisions against clubs that are within a 20-mile radius yeah, of my house? I, 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 don't, I don't know if he still lives Brent, in South York. Brentford. But like, if I was Rotherham, I'd be worried right <laughs> So it's, maybe it's partly that, but it's also aimed at their own fans and their own squad, right? It's, it's sort of their own consumption. They're, they're playing to their base, saying, you yeah. know, you know, we are being cheated here. And it, you know, it creates that mood of, of sort of fury and hostility. Uh, but the problem is every club's like that now. You know, Liverpool are like that. Arsenal are like that. All these sort of graphs of where referees come from, all these sort of tables of, oh, this referee's given 17 penalties against us in the last eight years, but he's only given 15 penalties to whoever. You know, it's it's just nonsense. I mean... They're only considering, remember this. So if they actually don't put it through... Are they then inflaming the raft of their own fans anyway? Because you said you were considering it, but you didn't actually follow through with it. Uh, Casemiro's miss was one of the highlights of the weekend for me, Barry. I mean, he made up for it by scoring. Um, I don't know if there's a, there's no question there. I just thought it was worth mentioning. But like Wilson's right, their midfield is like they're not. Sorry, I, I just I think I think that miss was really hard. I think he's slightly unsafe. Thank you. And the ball skids quite quickly at him because it's the pitch is wet. I, I I just don't think that's easy at all. Was the ball not in the air? No, it bounces. It, it bounces at the near post, doesn't it? Okay. It, bou- it bounced, yeah. It, it, yeah. There's two players at the near post who it, it whips past and then bounces up. I, I I just don't think he had any time to react at all. Fair enough. Barry, Barry disagrees. Is, is, uh, well, Barry, yeah. Barry knows about scoring headers. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real here. Um, is this a case of a team, you know, getting points when they're playing badly so Man United shouldn't panic? Or is there a, a deeper issue here, Barry? Uh, no, I, I think there are huge grounds for concern because... They'll only get away with it for so long. Um, they're not going to keep winning matches uh, because with a, a mid, you know that massive gap in midfield. Because 
they will encounter better opposition than Nottingham Forest more often than not. And those opponents will punish them. I'm not sure how, how Ericton Hag goes about fixing it, but it certainly looks like they they need someone at the, the base of that midfield to help shore things up. But then what do you do with Mason Mount? I don't know. You can't sit someone behind Casemiro, who's then sitting behind... Well, maybe sit someone's... alongside him. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Francis, did the panel see the accusation that Chris Sutton is part of a shadowy conspiracy fixing matches that United will win every game? I don't see it. It's ridiculous as it could possibly get. As if Chris Sutton, who I really like, actually, you know, who generally just sits in Norfolk and, you know, you know, occasionally, occasionally goes on air from his living room and then wanders back to things... Imagine he could be bothered to do that. It's just so absolutely ridiculous. I can't think of anyone who'd be less interested in doing that. I don't know whether um, Chris Sutton is part of the Illuminati or not, but <laughs> he never played for Southampton, so it's we're like we're we're only three weeks into the <laughs> we're only three weeks into the season, but already it seems like the paranoia and conspiracy theories on social media, the airwaves and elsewhere are even worse than usual. And I didn't think it was possible that it could get worse. Oh, I, I, is it any worse? It's probably just the same, isn't it? I mean, they're fun to laugh at, I guess. Anyway, um, <laughs> unless, of course, you know, Chris has been deciding the Premier League for for the last 30 years. We don't know, do we? Uh, that'll do for part one. Uh, part two, we'll begin at the Emirates. 2 of the Guardian Football Weekly. We've got a live tour, everybody. Uh, go to theguardian.com slash fwtour23, uh, November the 13th, London, 14th in Bristol, 15th in Manchester, 20th and 21st in Dublin, and the 22nd in Brighton. The Brighton show is being streamed around the world. So wherever you are listening to this right now, please get a ticket because um, it will make us feel good about ourselves. Um, Arsenal 2, Fulham 2. Another brilliant game, Troy, and another hilarious start to a football match. When I always think about Arsenal, um, and I know I get criticised quite a lot for being biased against them for some reason, I haven't got a clue why, I always talk about their defence and always say they've got a mistake in them and people shoot me down. And then throughout the course of the season, you can pluck out all these mistakes that, that leave Arsenal on the back foot. I mean, Saka's misplaced pass has not been mentioned much. And again, if it was Trent Alexander, he'd be getting vilified. And, and I get it because he's a, such a progressive young player. Um, but so is Trent. And a misplaced pass that early in the game, Ramsdale completely, you know, he's playing that sweeper-keeper stuff, isn't he? So he has no idea or no bearings where his goal is. Pereira's effort is not even that great, but it spun Ramsdale round and, and it looked funnier because of that whole reason where he didn't know where his goal was. Um, and there's something about Arsenal. They, you know, the, remember when we were going into that running last year and, and they were conceding early goals again and having to recover. And normally they have recovered and, and you know, 1-2-1 one, one or whatever it, score it may be. And, you know, come out quite fortunate. But they were up against a really determined Fulham side. And Fulham did very, really well in this game, considering that, again, Arsenal did turn it around and go 2-1 up and they stayed in the game and another good goal right at the end of it. And uh, Arsenal will be disappointed. There's Frouties there. They're, the back line, I don't know what he's doing with the back line at the moment. It doesn't look, you know, like a, a, a cohesive back four with the goalkeeper. And, and remember, there's players there that could apply pressure, particularly on Ramsdale. Um, so he needs to sort that element of his team out early doors because as much as he's paid money, um, particularly for the likes of Rice, etc., 
there's something leaking at, at the back there and it hasn't been right resolved for the past 18 months, I would say. Well, longer than that, but let's talk about the last 18 months. That's all I can remember. Tim says, is Arteta's tinkering of defence midfield and insistence on shoehorning in habits a worry for Arsenal fans? Steven says, why does Arteta keep playing party at, at right back? I mean, is this similar, Wilson? They haven't been brilliant so far and yet they've got seven points from nine. Yeah, I, I think the, the difference is you'd... Is, you know, two they've played, it's been a pretty benign start and they've already dropped two points. And if you're going to win the league, you probably can't afford to drop more than 20, 25. Uh, I think, I think they, you know, why, why is Partey playing at, at right-back? Well, it's because Sinchenko isn't there and he wants somebody who can move into midfield. But by doing that and moving White into the middle, where you did have White and Saliba on that right side of the defence, you've now got Partey and, and White and it's just not as secure. And and I think particularly the the last sort of half hour of the Forest game, you saw that, and that's exactly where um, Alanga made the run for the, for the Iwani goal. That is an issue. I'm not I'm not convinced of the balance of that midfield with with Havertz and Odegaard. I presume they wouldn't play that against against teams where they don't expect to dominate possession. If Party then moves in there alongside Rice, maybe that makes it more secure. So. I, I don't know. Do you, do you blame Arteta for the tinkering, or, or is it understandable tinkering? Given, I, I think one of the issues they had last season was how tired they were by the end. So I, I get he's trying to rotate players a bit more. Uh, I, you know, I think when Zinchenko comes back, presumably slots in at left back, he can do that job of stepping in the midfield, and and then things are a bit different. But they haven't played well as yet, and and it does it does feel that they've. It's, yeah, they've, they've dropped two points that they probably can't be afford to be dropping at this stage, given who they've played. Yeah, I heard a, an Arsenal fan, he, he was ranting and raving on, on TalkSport this morning to Ali McCoyst and, and Andy Townsend. But, you know, it seemed quite measured ranting and raving, and I agreed what he said, even though, like, he was very furious. But um, I I would agree with his point that Havertz looks lost in the midfield at the moment. And I also think it's a bit bonkers the party's playing it right back. But we have criticised Arteta's methods before and been made look foolish. And maybe he deserves the opportunity to continue to, to meddle and tinker, even if some people are accusing him of going full pep and, and overthinking everything. But, uh, yeah, I'd be inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt for the time being. But the Fabio Vieira was excellent against Fulham and he now enters the equation, surely, when it comes to team selection. So if he comes in, who misses out? Well, it's an interesting question about Havertz, right? Which is, if you say he looks lost in midfield and then last season he was looking lost up front, is this just someone who's really brilliant at football but just there's no there's nowhere for him to be on a football pitch? Because he's got such natural ability, or like what, or or is is he? Do you have to build the team around him, Wilson? What's what's where do you put Kai Havertz? What's the dream place for him? I, well, maybe Germany, um, <laughs> but yeah, you can't build a team around somebody in modern football. That's just not how it works. Um, I I I think he is a brilliant footballer, and I think he's a really unusual player in terms of his his physique. You know, he's like a really big ghost. You know, he, he, you know, a ghost should be sort of slight, but he's not. He's a, he's a big, powerful ghost. And that's quite an odd, disarming thing. And if he could work out how to use that, that would be very, very dangerous. I think but- it's really general. That's a real generalisation about ghosts, isn't it? I mean, you're sort of thinking of the Casper sort of variant. I mean, like the Slimer is not slight. See, he's sort of quiet. I was thinking of your more classic Gothic ghost. I wasn't really sort of thinking right. of your... So maybe, maybe my views on ghosts are outdated. <laughs> it seems it seems like it, doesn't it? Anyway, look, we should mention Fulham because they were in this game, and you know they deserve huge credit, Troy, and and actually Paulinho, who who, who got the equaliser, it's like he's a he's so vital to them, and I was actually surprised that he didn't go somewhere better in the summer. Ooh, somewhere better. When you say better, yeah. do you I mean there are better there are better teams there are better teams <laughs> than Fulham. I don't, I don't feel that's a controversial statement. Listen, he's he's a really good player, and and there's still uh, time in the transfer window for someone to potentially come and you know nick him. It, it, he was very dominant, and and again that I think the midfield Arsenal's midfield allowed him to be dominant. It wasn't 
again, we, we've mentioned Hazard, you know, Odegaard, Rice. I think he fancied playing up against them and he played well and he got the equaliser. And, you know, Fulham, it's interesting because Bassey, I was questioning the goal, um, Enketia goal, when Bassey was down injured in the box, feeling that potentially the game should have been stopped. But again, that head injury rule and do you stop a game if it's not a head injury and stuff like that. And he, he caused his own problems anyway. But like I say, I think Fulham recovered really, really well. But I think Arsenal allowed them to do that. There was something about Arsenal that just wasn't, that hasn't been right. And yes, Arteta deserves a tremendous amount of praise for what he's he's done and where he's taken them. And But that doesn't mean that there's still not critical moments where you question, you know, the manager's set up. And I, again, with Havertz, I think they're trying to, to fit him in somewhere because he's a big signing. And I don't, I'm not sure it's working at the moment, but... Fulham captured that and they did really well. And considering some of the players that they've lost this season, obviously, particularly Mitrovic, I thought they'd struggle to score goals. So for them to get to, you know, at the Emirates, I think, again, it's another marvellous achievement. And I think they're going to approach the, the Premier League in the same manner that they did. And I think they'll do well this year. To the Amex, Brighton won West Ham three autumn, says, how much more does Barry need to see before he regrets predicting West Ham to finish in 19th? I think I relegated them as well. They were top on Saturday evening, Baz. Yeah, it was a great win for them because I think Brighton played really well in this game, as we've come to expect them to do. It wasn't like a calamitous performance um, when they got dismantled by Everton last season. Uh, They were good. Uh, Brighton and West Ham still beat them 3-1 despite having the 21% possession. Brighton had 10 shots on target. Evan Ferguson on another day might have had a hat-trick. He was denied by three splendid saves from uh, Alfonso Ariola. West Ham and generally, and I thought Mikel Antonio in particular and Jared Bowen were, were brilliant and it was textbook Moyes scoring on counter-attacks. Um, the Jared Bowen goal was just wonderful. Ben Rama holding the ball up on the left, sends in the cross, and Bowen's made this absolutely lung-busting run from midfield. And the way he took, took the ball down and, and finished was just superb. Mm. James Ward-Prowse got off the mark for West Ham as well. He, he's got, he looks like he's going to be an excellent signing. And um, yeah, it it look it's very early in the season, but I think those of us who predicted relegation for West Ham could be made to look rather dumb. Mm, Andrew says, "Will this Moyes super team score more goals than they have percent possession in the match against Man City in a few weeks?" I do like that idea: two percent possession, three goals. Wilson Antonio, when he is like that, and he started the season like this. Sort of feel he's unplayable. Like, like I just think he's such a he like, like he's obviously super talented. But like that turn was just I don't know who, what defender stops him. Yeah, I mean his, his goal on Saturday's goal against Chelsea the, the previous week are both brilliant, brilliant goals. Um, but I think he's a great example of a player who's at exactly the right team. You know, West Ham need a, a centre forward like him, who doesn't need players close to him, who can hold the ball up, who is good at turning, who if there's nobody near him can win free kicks and throw-ins. I mean, it, it, the thing that occurred to me was how good would Salomon Rondon be playing for David Moyes? <laughs> and what a tragedy <laughs> that we, we never got to see that. It's still time, surely. Has, has Rondon retired or is that, you know, he must be clogging away in Venezuela somewhere. You want peak Rondon. But, but, and I think it's a measure of how, how difficult and unusual what Antonio does uh, that West Ham people trying to bring in players either to replace him or, or, or at least to sort of to supplement him. And they can't find anybody because nobody else, or very few people in the modern game can can do what he does. So, yeah, I think it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a great example of how the right player in the right team can can hit levels that, that I, don't, you know, I don't think he'd be anywhere near that if he moved to an ostensibly better club. I can confirm, sorry, that uh, Salomon Rondon is at River Plate. Is he? 
which um, wow. yeah, good for him. Eh? Uh, he scored three goals in fifteen appearances. I was going to give some praise to Moyes, and you know, as soon as we're knocking managers or, or whatever else, it's nice to praise someone who is. You know, well, we're not. You are. <laughs> I mean, just to, okay. <laughs> you know, he set his team. He's got players playing where they're comfortable playing, and the way he set his team up. You know. Again, I didn't see the West Ham Chelsea game, but everyone was was praising Chelsea. West Ham won three one. Barry's praised Brighton, and yes, they did play well, but they played into West Ham's hands. And West Ham playing with a low block, with as we've rightly done, praising Antonio for the way that they can get out, and allowing them to get out gives Bowen and Ben Rama the other side the opportunity to then go and join and create havoc. Um, I'm not quite sure what was on that note from Moyes, but that note created the goal. Um, the note that went to Bowen, and as Barry has rightly said, the touch, the the, the control, the touch, the finish, uh, like that's everything that you'd want to see from someone who's joining the play late and arrives in the box kind of unannounced. So massive praise for Moyes with the way that he set his team up and, and, you know, how they're soaking up the pressure. You know, it doesn't need a lot of touches to score goals and, and West Ham are proving that at the moment. Six goals in their last two um, goals from really good goals as well. And I'm still a little bit flabbergasted why no one else was interested or looking at or potentially picking up James Ward-Prowse because he's going to be an absolute steal um, for West Ham or will create chances all day long and hopefully get on the end of some as well. I say hopefully. I'm not, e- not even a West Ham fan, so I don't know why I said hopefully. That's right. You can you can wish for nice things for people. That's fine. Uh, Daniel says, is Ange the first non-Spursy Spurs-style appropriate Spurs manager? Uh, even Robbie Williams is singing about Ange Postacoglu. Um, I thought Wilson in the first half against Bournemouth. I thought they were they were brilliant. They didn't maintain that. And Bournemouth could have got back into it, but that first half, I thought Spurs were excellent. Yeah, but I, I know what you mean about the second half. But for the second week running, Spurs having got ahead came under a bit of pressure. Postacoglu made substitutions, and and suddenly the momentum was back in Spurs' favour. And that I think is is really impressive. So. Yeah, I, I, Spurs have been much, much better so far than I expected them to be this season, at this stage, certainly. Um, I, I know everybody's saying this as well, but it's so weird going into a press conference with a manager who's basically just a normal bloke, yeah. who sort of talks like a real person. Yeah, so last week he was sort of, well, you know, when you've been here six weeks, what do you expect? We want to see Sprouts, we've got Sprouts. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's... Yeah, that, he's right. <laughs> that is what's happening. Um, but yeah, I, I think... The thing that's been really impressive is the way he's made changes in games that have had a positive effect. So I don't know if his squad's deep enough to sustain top four um, or, or beyond that. But I, if I were a Spurs fan, I'd be much, much happier at this stage than, than I have been for two or three years. Troy, do you, I mean, I, I wondered this. I wrote a, a, a sort of a glowing love letter to Ange in the paper last week. But I was saying, you know, the like the surprise amongst it was, it was almost pornographic. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Um, I love the guy, um, but but I wondered, should we be so surprised that a team can change how they play so quickly? Obviously, there's been personnel changes, but all these players growing up didn't all sit in a low block for their entire youth career, right? They all know how to get the ball and pass it and move it, don't they? I mean, sh- or, or, or like, should we be incredible? Like, how impressed should we be with the change in style? Three games. Um, I think all Spurs fans should be encouraged. I think some are going OTT at the moment. Um, but when you place... <laughs> Are you looking at, looking at me there? <laughs> <laughs> when you place a real number 10, Spurs have been waiting for a number 10 for, uh, let's just say this, Harry Kane wore the number 10. So, But what I'm talking about is a player that, that has guile, plays in areas that people don't like to pick up on, gets a lot of touches on the ball, is creative and then can put the ball in the back of the net as well. Madison has brought so much to that team already. And I know, Jonathan, was it you that said you can't build a team around an individual anymore, but you can do so much around someone who is the spark. You know, I don't know if you saw that video where he was going to take the corner and they were giving him uh, a bit of abuse, weren't they? And he just rolled it outside of the arc and smiled at them, you know. And for me... The way he plays the game is the way that he almost approaches life, I'd imagine. I don't know him, but he's got such a carefree attitude. And I think it's rubbing off on so many as well in that Tottenham. Well, maybe not Richarlison, 
who still walks around with the heavy look on his on his face. But Saar, Basuma, uh, Madison, it's a it's a brilliant free at the moment. It's working. I enjoy watching Saar as well. I think he's an, an amazing young talent that should have had more games last season and didn't. Um, I still do believe that they're slightly fragile at the back, but they're dealing with it better. So there still seems to be a couple of issues with for me there, but they're actually dealing with it better than what they have done with people who have been, you know, managers who who defensively are supposed to be the best that there is. They need to get another one over the line at the back, as far as I'm concerned, although it looks like they're looking at young Johnson from Forrest. Um, but I do think they need to get another one in at the back who will enable them to stabilise a little bit more. But at the moment, Spurs fans can be excited, but there's a long way to go, isn't there, in the formation of that of that team and eventually squad. The other thing I think about Madison, I, I would completely take your point about his, his attitude is, is a very sort of refreshing, positive thing. But it's it's not that he just plays as a number 10. It's not that he, he just plays off, off the, the front man. Because the way he played on Saturday, he played much deeper than he had done against Manchester United. And that, I think, was a deliberate thing to counter Bournemouth's press. Yeah. Yeah. And that really worked. And he's got the tactical intelligence to do that. Yeah, I think the danger if you if you, you know, build a team around one player is you become very predictable. Whereas Madison has that, that tactical intelligence, he, he can change his role. Uh, and that's partly obviously what he's been told, but partly his own capacity to, to understand the game. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that, that, that whole midfield three, I think him, So and Basuma have, have all been excellent so far. Yeah, just a quick word on Bournemouth before we move on. I... I'm getting slightly worried for them. Now, it's obviously too early to panic, but they spent quite a lot of money, and quite a lot of the money they have spent went on Alex Scott and Tyler Adams, who are both injured, and neither of whom appear likely to be fit again anytime soon. And Bournemouth's next four matches are Brentford, Chelsea, Brighton and Arsenal, and they could conceivably lose all of those and find themselves with one point after seven games and you'd imagine a manager whose job is already under threat and I, I I'm just wondering what you think of that policy assigning to players who presumably will become key for them when they're fit again when they are sidelined with long-term injuries I mean Tyler Adams hasn't played football since March do you think um Gary do you think Gary O'Neill is absolutely pissing himself probably not no I mean it, They've, they've only lost two games and they look quite decent, but I, I do. I was a bit surprised when, you know, you've already got one long term injured player, you signed him and then you signed another one. And just, just think, why don't you buy players who can actually come into the team and contribute? They're interesting questions, Barry. <laughs> we don't have time because um, <laughs> producer Joel is yelling at me. He's writing it in a Google Doc. 45 minutes gone. We've got five games left to cover. Chelsea 3, Luton 0. Um, uh, crisis over at Stamford Bridge, Troy. A nice reminder of how good Raheem Sterling is. This felt like sort of carefree Liverpool Raheem Sterling to me. The goal really pleased me because it was a, a Raheem Sterling at Manchester City type goal where he normally played with no fear, uh, drove into the box, stroked it in with his left foot. Um, it's the kind of thing that you know, he was producing on a regular basis. And I know this Chelsea is nothing like the Man City, but he's got to take the ball by the horns. He's got to be the leader in that side. You know, he's 28 years of age and he's probably the, what is the most established Premier League player at the club. Um, and he played like it. it, it it's, it's like almost Poch has given him the responsibility um, and he's gone, thanks Gaffer, I'm going to take this on board and I'll drive everyone else around me um, to different levels. And, Look, I don't think Chelsea are anywhere near where they need to be and there'll be many, many challenges along the way. But if they've got a, a fit, a vibrant Raheem Sterling uh, driving the rest of the, the, the squad around him, a very young squad around him, scoring goals, creating opportunities, um, who knows? You know, They only need to stabilise a little bit for that to really come to fruition. So I'm pleased for him because you don't lose that quality at all. He had a tough season last season, as most did at Chelsea. Um, but I'm pleased that he started, you know, the new season in the, in the manner that he has because it can only be good for the club. And obviously, if he gets his England place back on that, it can only be good for England as well. Um, I, I'm stupidly, Wilson, watching Caicedo doing a lot of very simple things going, come on, I could do those things. Like, and clearly, like, a really good defensive midfielder 
is not necessarily there for home to Luton, right? But that balance to that midfield, because Enzo is so talented, actually could... It, like, I could see reasons to be positive when we're talking about the midfield issues at, say, Liverpool and at Manchester United at the moment. That one, I think, has real potential. Oh, I mean, they're, they're both brilliant players. They would seem to have complementary skills. It's possible that the two of them are, 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 are sort of a, the engine room of Chelsea for the next decade. Um, the worry is that they're 22 and 21, uh, or 21 and 20. They're both young anyway. That lack of experience might might be an issue. But that's the problem throughout the, the side, you know, you can't look at any real player there and say, he's a terrible footballer, why have they signed him? But you just worry about this policy of signing only youth as to where that goes. But yeah, Sterling, I think then has a, does have a big role at, at, at 28. But he, he has been excellent. Nicholas Jackson getting his goal, I thought played well as well. So there are positive signs. But then, yeah, it's Luton at home. You should, if you're not winning that, there's real problems. As Chelsea, sorry, as Chelsea. Barry, if Luton had... They kept it at 1-0. I think they sort of had one chance at 1-0. And like, obviously we all think they'll struggle and it wouldn't be, a, there's no shame in them struggling in the Premier League. But they need those moments. They just need to really be clinical in those moments because otherwise it's hard to see where their points come from. Yeah, look, um, Chelsea's starting lineup costs 414 million more than Luton's and it showed on the pitch. And of course they're going to struggle how much more? Four hundred and fourteen million. Wow! So Chelsea's is four thirty. Yeah, that's quite a lot, isn't and it? And Luton's is sixteen million. Um, you know, Luton came up. They had one of the smallest budgets in the Championship last season, and they, they came up and they, they they did okay on Friday, but just totally outclassed, and and you would expect them to be. Yeah. Uh, all right, that'll do for part two. Part three, uh, we'll do the other games starting at Goodison. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, the boos ring out at Goodison. Oh, this is desperate, Troy, isn't it? Three defeats, haven't scored a goal. I, I, when Dan Juma went through, I was like, oh, that looks like Neil Mope, and he missed. I went, oh, Mope's missed again. And then I looked and it wasn't him, it was Dan Juma. Oh, 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 I don't know what's, I don't know what's, well, what is going on is exactly what has been going on. You know, two teams who... Struggling in front of goal. I mean, Wolves are still a very creative side and I, and I don't know why they continue to struggle despite the managers that they have. Um, Everton have, have almost lost the art of putting the ball in the back of the net. And what happens there is you then hope defensively that you are strong enough to be able to keep the opposition out. And the goal they concede is such a, a, a poor goal, a weak goal, um, that it, you, you struggle to see how they get out of this. Although... They are in the market for a couple of strikers, um, one potentially coming in today, and you'd think they, they would definitely need another because, as I've mentioned more than enough times on the pod, you know, Dominic Calvert-Lewin's body's failed him. And, uh, you know, I know his injury was was a freak injury last week, but it keeps him out. Um, although I'd like to focus on Decore's chance that Saar did make a really good save at, but he shouldn't really have had the opportunity to... I don't know why Decore's gone with his head, by the way. So it's all about decisions. It's all about choices. And they're obviously not confident in front of goal. And they may score a million goals in training and, and feel confident when they walk on the field of play. But when you repetitively miss opportunities that potentially you should be scoring, it then just runs through the team, you know. And um, even Talkowski had one earlier on that he just literally swiped at and you know, blazed it over the bar. So uh, there's a lot more work on the training ground. New signings will always create a buzz. Um, and I, I think Daesh would need them in as quick as possible um, because I can't see where they break this cycle of, of missed opportunities at the moment. Maybe a simplistic point, Barry, but I do love how big Kaladic is. And, you know, if you've got someone that big, if you just kick it higher than the opposition <laughs> players, he might score some headers. Yeah, well, I don't think that even was a header. It kind of went in off his back, didn't it? He's that big. It's that yeah. big. Any part of his torso is above the opposition player. Um, bit, bit of dithering from Jordan Pickford. And, yeah, uh, I'd be honest, I kind of don't really have anything new to say about Everton. Um, they're, they're a mess. Uh, and uh, I, I fully expected them to lose that game, and they did. Uh, so, yeah. 
There we are. Sheffield United one, Man City two. Wilson, uh, what, what did you make of what did you make of this one? It was about two minutes when the title race was alive, but yeah, it didn't last long. And I think that's the sort of <laughs> the worry for everybody else that I think positions two to nine this season are going to be really tightly contested. But that might just make it easier for position one to zoom ahead. The City, I don't think, have been anywhere near their best so far yet. They're the only team to have won three games. And I mean, they they should have won that game comfortably. They had 30-odd chances. Um, missed the penalty. I mean, I don't think it should be a penalty, but they missed it. Uh, and then, you know, Sheffield United get the equaliser. You think, oh, they've dropped two points. You know, they're not going to be ahead yet. And then two minutes later, just a brilliant finish from Rodri. So um, they they just they're not just better than everybody else. They seem to have a that that capacity to score goals exactly when they need them. James has asked Troy if Harlan's penalty was on target. Yes, it was. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> I did. Re- I mean, match of the day two really highlighted it. But Kyle Walker for the Sheffield United equaliser was hilarious. Barry. Him with his head in his hands was funny. I've no idea what he was trying to do with the back heel and then watching him lying behind the goal line with you know, his head in his hands, as you say, because watching his worst nightmare unfold. Uh, but to be fair to him, he, he very much made amends soon afterwards because uh, his input in the, the winner was critical. He, he won the ball. Well, I think he set up the original move that led to... The cross coming in for Haaland, which Haaland couldn't get his head to. And then he won the ball back from Yasser Larousi, um, who was trying, I think, to shepherd it out of play and sent in another cross from which the goal came. So, yeah, more of them made up for his mistake. I wonder, will his former club um, be invoicing him for the damage he did with his studs to their advertising hoarding? His reverse Kets buyer, wasn't it? Um, mind you, do, who is it? LaRussi, you say? Yeah. Like, that is absolutely abject defending. I mean, he's sort of trying to shepherd it, but then he just sort of falls over. Just has a lie yeah. down, doesn't he? Just had, he just had to lie down. Now's not the time to lie down, mate. You've got a bit more time. Um, uh, Pep wasn't at the game, and it was nice to see Juan Malio Lilo, is, is how you pronounce it, taking the ear pods out. Oh, I just don't want to listen to this. Yeah. You see yeah. cyclists doing that sometimes in. Big races, they just rip their earpiece out and you know leave it hanging down because they're sick of some bloke who's in a nice warm car telling them to pedal harder. <laughs> you know, I'm doing my best. Out comes the earpiece. Yeah, Pep. You know, if there were sirens around Pep, or if Pep was like unpacking the dishwasher, that can really amplify through a phone, can't it? I mean, I, know, I mean, he's recuperating, but yeah, what Pep's like. But if it- if Pep is fit enough to unload a dishwasher, surely he's fit enough to <laughs> sit in the dugout it's a, at Bramall Lane. That's a good point. Um, uh, uh, Barry's fictional son, Dylan, writes, is Troy worried that new analyst Andros might take his spot on the pod or will we see a father-son combo package like Wrighty and Sean Wright-Phillips on Premier League TV? <laughs> um, I'm not sure Premier League TV would have me. So he's the better one out of the two of us. So if I do get pushed to the subs bench... Um, I'd gratefully move aside. I think you're doing yourself a disservice there, Troy. Uh, your son ca- was a coward yesterday. He sat on the fence <laughs> when, when Jamie Carragher was there to be taken down for his, quite frankly, absurd analysis of the um, Virgil van Dijk sending off. It was Andros's big chance to shine and he bottled it. He, he wouldn't do that. <laughs> Yeah, I was surprised that he did say I'm sitting on the fence on this one, although he then described the fact of why um, is actually, uh, no, it was a sending off kind of thing. But yeah, he he, he did have an opportunity. All right, I'm happy to stay in front for now. Just slightly. Charlie says, is missing that penalty going to cost Erling Haaland the golden boot to Matty Cash? Uh, uh, Burnley won Aston Villa three. Actually, Villa, like, obviously, we all said they do well. Then they got pumped by Newcastle. We went, actually, they'll do terribly. And now they've won a couple. They attack with such pace, Wilson, don't they? It's really exciting to watch them. Yeah, I, I thought this. I was really disappointed this game wasn't on telly. Because um, I, 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 it just looked like an interesting game. Because Villa, I think, they much prefer to, to dominate possession. I thought it was very unlikely they would against Burnley. Uh, Burnley last season had more possession in every home game they played. Obviously, they didn't against City this season, and Villa had to had to change how they play. They you know they they went to the back three. They they played more on the counter. 
but they did it very, very well. And, and, and I think that shows Emery's quality as a coach, that he's, he's got his default way of playing, but he can change it and he can change it very, very effectively. So I thought Villa, what, you know, what I saw the highlights, bossed the first half and yeah, first half, the second half maybe, um, Burnley came back into it, but but Villa then got the third and um, yeah, they they have such pace in forward areas. Uh, I, I think they're a really good side to watch. They do just occasionally have that that. I mean, it happened last season as well, didn't it? They had those three games in a row where they let in um, four to Leicester, four to Arsenal, four to Leicester, three to City, four to Arsenal. They then put it right, and I, I think what happened at Newcastle on the opening day was just a bit like that. That if you play with a high line. It doesn't take much to go wrong for you to get picked off and, and they, they, they do seem now to have sorted that out. Yeah, Musa Diaby looks great. Zaniola's got a lovely touch. It'd be fascinating to see how they get on. Aston Villa's team bus was attacked after the game. Uh, reports say there was significant damage to the bus after a brick or something was thrown at the windscreen about two miles from Turf Moor. In a statement, Bernie said the club are relieved to hear nobody was hurt in the incident. Um, seven games, seven defeats for the promoted teams so far. Finally, Brentford won, Crystal Palace won. Um, Kevin Schiller's goal was great but not the goal of the game Barry when a centre-back slide tackles one in that's what I'm here for <laughs> Joachim Anderson yes uh, I remain mystified as quite how he managed to sneak the ball through the legs of um, Flecken in goal for uh, Brentford and he, I mean even Thomas Frank was able to laugh at it after the game just going it was such a, a mix-up between Flecken and Nathan Collins, uh, his two summer signings. But yeah, it was a decent point, I suppose, for both teams. Yeah, I think they so. seem to draw every time they play, don't they? Every single game, time they've met in the Premier League, I think they've drawn. It's an agreement to always be last on match of the day, isn't it? No one thinks it's going to be high up the running order. And then they get a draw, and everyone goes, "Okay, we know where we know where where we stand." But we will obviously talk more Brentford and Palace as the season goes on. Um, on tomorrow's pod, by the way, we're looking back at the Women's World Cup and covering the uh, Rubiales story in detail. Um, uh, just one uh, bit of any other business uh, on the subject of whether Jonathan Wilson is a celebrity. Um, I can't remember where this originated. Um, oh, it was because somebody met you on a train. That was it, Wilson. And you had to talk to them for ages. And Barry speculated that you would have hated the conversation. It wasn't for ages. It was uh, it was for two minutes. Uh, I was I was getting off at the next stop anyway. Um, but I was very glad he explained because I I thought I'd been incredibly rude to the woman sitting next to him. I I, I assumed she wasn't with him. And then I, as I stood up, I heard her talk to him, and I thought, Oh God, if they're together, I've just completely ignored her. But it turned out from what what the message said that she was just somebody random who kind of was wondering why he was bothering to talk to me. Uh, Jamie says, Hi, Max and Barry. I've just finished listening to Monday's pod. Wanted to offer a contribution on the question of whether Wilson is a celebrity. A few years ago, I was at my girlfriend's parents' house while they were watching an episode of Only Connect. After recognising one of the players, I confidently said, Oh, this must be a celebrity edition. That's Jonathan Wilson. I've got some of his books. <laughs> we then spent the rest of the episode trying to work out what the other contestants were famous for before I eventually concluded that maybe Wilson isn't a celebrity after all, although this was before his Ted Lasso fame. So you, I mean, you just went on the bog standard. Well, I did, but the, the person sat next to me is more famous than me because it was the cricket commentator, Dan Norcross. Oh, I don't think, I'm, I wouldn't put Norcross ahead of you in fame. Really? No, I don't think... He's certainly a bigger personality than me. Well, that is true. He makes more noise than you. <laughs> That's definitely true. But I don't think he's more famous than you. I mean, for, for perfectly natural reasons, I was uh, looking up um, the name Jonathan and where, where it came from and its uses the other night. And it, it, this this list had me as the sixth most famous Jonathan in history. What? Which, yeah. I mean, it was clearly wrong. Uh, I mean, it was terrible news for... Jonathan Rees Myers, Jonathan Price, Jonathan out the Bible. Can we guess the five? Jonathan Morris from Bread, I presume. Jonathan is. Swift. No, uh, Jonathan Swift was first. I'm not sure I can remember any of the others, to be honest, but Jonathan Swift was top. Fair enough. I'm, I'm happy to. John LaBaptist or Jonathan, or was he just a John? Who? Isn't it John LaBaptist? Wasn't he, isn't he in the Bible? Isn't he some quite famous? John the Baptist. No, it's just John. It's just John. Jonathan Ross, not in the Bible, but is he, is he more famous than you? Uh, he wasn't in the top five, I don't think. Yeah, who knows how they judged it. They gave me a fame quotient of 14. I don't know what that meant. <laughs> it's true, there aren't as many famous Jonathans 
as I as I thought. Jonathan Lee. There was a great moment at Jonathan Lee's birthday a few years ago when we were in some bar in Clerkenwell and two lads wander over towards us and he sort of priming himself and then they veered to me and I enjoyed that immensely on his birthday. On his birthday. <laughs> Perhaps that's affected the quotient, didn't it? Yeah, possibly. That's yeah. possibly a moment. Uh, anyway, um, that'll do for today, won't it? Uh, thank you, Troy. Thanks, Max. Must be in the top six famous <laughs> Troys. I mean, obviously... Troy, the place, is pretty famous. Um, I'll be surprised if I'm not in the top three, to be totally honest, Max. I've got to be, yeah, surely. Tro- Troy's named after a person, isn't it? The city of Troy is named after somebody called Troy. Troy Townsend. It was named up, to be totally honest, it was named after Troy Townsend. <laughs> <laughs> By the way. Um, anyway, thanks, Troy. Thank you, Max. Pleasure. Thank you, Wilson. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks, Baz. Thanks. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. The executive producer is Daniel Stevens. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Thank you.